The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, June 21st, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hillary Clinton today gave a big speech on the economy, or more specifically, a big speech on what the economy would look like under Trump. You know the word hellscape. It's, it's thrown around pretty casually these days, and yet... Here are some highlights. I will play some highlights of her speech. But first, a pre-buttle from Donald Trump's Twitter feed. Crooked Hillary Clinton is totally unfit to be our president. Really bad judgment and a temperament, according to a new book, which is a mess. Well, I don't want to read that book then. So on to the speech by Hillary Clinton. So we know people are working harder and longer just to keep their heads above water. Keeping their heads above water. And that is when it hit me. This speech had not just a theme, not just a critique of Trump, but an implied promise. And I here in this space will attempt to take the subtext and make a text as I lay out what she was really saying. So first, Hillary Clinton acknowledged that the economy could be better. Good jobs in many parts of our country are still too hard to come by. In other words, temporary layoffs. He made a fortune filing bankruptcies and stiffing his creditors. Easy credit ripoffs. The last time we opted for Trump-style isolationism, it made the Great Depression longer and more painful. Hanging in a chow line. Maybe this is what he means when he says... I love playing with debt. Not getting hassled, not getting hustled. We've got a dynamite show for you today in the spiel. We can't seem to make any laws about guns. Maybe I can make some analogies about laws about guns. But first, it's two days to the Brexit vote. Will Britain leave Europe, avowing as it always does that it's in a lifeless marriage? It's making all these promises to Jersey and Guernsey saying, I swear I'll leave. We will have on this show a wise, wise man to discuss what a bad, bad decision this will be. We're about to be told if Britain bracks the Brexit or rebruts those bracking Britain Brexiting the EU. I'll stop now, but I do have to note that as scary as the idea of the Brexit is, it must be especially horrible to those with the very rare B to BR speech impediment. It's called a lispr. Right now, joining me is Financial Times chief U.S. commentator and columnist, and he's author of the book Time to Start Thinking, America and the Specter of Decline. Edward Luce. Hello, Ed. Hi, Mike. Good to be with you. Thanks for coming on. And I should note to our American audience, uh, the name of the book is Time to Start Thinking America in the Age of Dissent. But we haven't quite decided if we're descending or not, have we? No, we, we definitely haven't. It's an open question. And I prefer the specter of decline for that reason. But the other thing about the specter of decline is the specter itself is something that can be played upon and I think is being played upon both in the Trump phenomenon and in Britain. The idea that America or Britain is declining, is being threatened with decline and what to do about that. 
Yeah, that's that's another reason why I'm hesitant to sort of. Well, apart from my accent in this country, if you talk declinism, there's an assumption not that you're you're being detached or an objective, but that you're actually wishing um, uh, in some sort of sneering British way um, for American decline, which is very, very far from the truth. Um, I'm pro-American and um, um, understand full well the implications for all of us across the West to use that you know, term in its general sense of what would happen if there's a vast vacuum created by America's retreat. So I, I don't wish for America's decline, but also I hesitate because there are a lot of right-wing cultural pessimists who yeah. talk about decline, and they mean something totally different to what I'm talking about. They're talking about morals and, you know, um, social ties and um, often have a, um, a Christian agenda, and that's very much different subject matter to the one I'm addressing. Yeah, that's they're they're a little bit of the hell in a handbasket crowd, the cranky old man crowd, but also a little bit of the uh, rapture crowd. Yeah, and you know, sort of Patrick Buchanan keeps cropping him up amongst all these types, and I really don't want to be in any way um, uh, intellectually second, third cousin once removed from Patrick Buchanan. <laughs> what have you learned about your country and your countrymen during the Brexit debate? I have learned a number of things. The first is that, you know, we really are in a, in a post-serious politics nowadays. I mean, it, it manifests itself in different ways. You know, Italy maybe came to that realization with Berlusconi and Beppe Grillo a long time before we have in Britain and America evidence sort of empirical findings, serious policy papers, all that kind of stuff, which used to have some weight. They might not have swayed elections, but they sort of lurked beneath the surface of elections as being serious stuff that people in the media would sift through, some very earnest voters might sift through, don't have any weight whatsoever anymore. And evidence seems to be really almost immaterial when it's set against feelings and perceptions. And that, and that to me is a rather scary realization. And it's true, I think, well, it certainly has been true in the Republican primary on this side of the Atlantic, but it's true of the Brexit debate as a whole. The Leave campaign, you know, led by essentially an entertainer, Boris Johnson, an entertainer who somehow became mayor of London, who's up against um, another slightly more sober entertainer, David Cameron, but who, again, has no real serious background. He just became prime minister. And they are a year apart from each other at Eton College, the poshest, snobbiest school in Britain, and therefore were a year apart each of each other at Oxford. And it's very personal, and both of them want the job that Cameron is in. And they are playing very careless poker with the deep-set national interest of the country that we're talking about, Britain. And I find that very unserious, but with potentially devastatingly serious consequences. It's worrying. Of course, it's happening here too. Do you think that Boris Johnson, though, is someone who uses humor to advance politics? I mean, Trump is an entertainer, whereas Johnson, maybe we could charitably describe him as colorful. Do you think that he is actually buying the his own arguments that he's putting forth for the Brexit, that he thinks Britain will be better separated from the EU? I have to be a little bit careful here because I know Boris and I know his family quite well. And, you know, I don't want to be personally too critical of him because one of his brothers in particular is a very close friend. Um, okay. uh, that having been said, I have absolutely zero doubt 
that he does not believe it's in Britain's interests to leave the European Union. So why, you might ask, is he leading the campaign for Britain to leave the European Union? And I think there's only really, again, being careful by process of deduction, one possible motive, and that is he wants to be prime minister. And the scenario in which he becomes prime minister is David Cameron is defeated in his Remain campaign, is therefore toppled. And the natural person to turn to is the the man who led the Leave campaign, namely Boris. That's the scenario under which Boris becomes prime minister. And I hate to say it, but I wouldn't say it unless I thought it was true. And other people who know Boris better than I have been saying it too, um, which is that his personal ambition is far greater than his sense of principle or, or indeed his care for the country that he wants to lead. The calamity that would be, perhaps that's overstating it, but they would certainly, I haven't read any. Oh, I don't think so. I think calamity is a good word. Okay, so let's say with somewhere between calamity or the overwhelmingly agreed upon by experts setback that the Brexit would represent. With the equivalent in America with Trump, we could lay out the case why his trade policies might even hurt the people that they're designed to help. But Perhaps charitably, we say, you know, they're downwardly mobile, former blue collar workers who once had it good and don't, and they're grasping for something. And maybe we feel some empathy for them. Is this the same with you and uh, your countrymen, the, uh, the Brits who want the Brexit? You understand that times are so tough for them that a uh, Svengali type, you know, maybe has some appeal? Yes, I do think there is some uncanny parallels um, between the kinds of people who are voting for Brexit, their, their, their similarities with the kinds of people who've been voting for Trump, and also the sort of magical um, hope they invest in a very simple and uh, I would say simplistic solution to their troubles. Now, clearly, you know, they are not the beneficiaries um, in their own eyes and perhaps objectively of globalization in the way most of the rest of their societies are. They haven't been doing well. Their incomes have been stagnant or falling. They tend not to live in the grand multicultural metropolises like London and New York and LA and, you know, Manchester, Edinburgh, uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. They tend, therefore, to be less acquainted with people who aren't like them and more fearful of them. And I think, you know, it's no coincidence. You will find anti-immigrant and pro Brexit sentiment rises the further away you get from mixed communities in Britain. And so there are parallels there with the Trump phenomenon. Trump, you know, has a magic, we will build a wall with Mexico that sort of symbolizes what he's about and what his supporters would like to see. They would like to bring the curtain down on this harsh, open, confusing, multicultural world that they haven't really benefited from in their eyes, and I think probably objectively they haven't either. And leaving the EU performs the same function for the Brexit voters as the war with Mexico does for Trump's. Do the Brits who support the Brexit see that their leaders who support it are acting Trumpian? I'm not sure that they do. I'm not sure the ones who support Brexit see it that way or would necessarily see Trump in the same negative light that people who read the Financial Times do or watch the BBC News. There's a real sense of bubble. You know, the media in London, do they actually have a clue what's going on in the minds of people living in the, the smaller post-industrial cities in the north 
or in some of the small towns in the South, do they have a clue what these people think? You know, I hear in conversations over here in D.C. and and outside of D.C., people say they don't know one Trump voter in their own personal life. I hear exactly the same. I was in Britain last week for five days. I hear exactly the same conversations in London. So I don't know anybody who's going to vote for Brexit. More than half of voters, according to some polls, do. So that the sense of there being a bubble and of us not really knowing what people who perceive themselves to be outside the bubble think is a very strong new thing that I don't think you'd have heard 10, 15 years ago. One phenomenon that explains Trump's popularity or relative popularity in the, in the United States is that even economic news, even empirical economic data is seen through a partisan lens. So in 2014, for instance, 24% of Americans thought the American economy had gotten better, which it had. But if you break down Democrat and Republicans, 43% of Democrats thought it was improving, only 8% thought it was improving on the Republican side is something now we're told this is a really American phenomenon for a number of reasons, um, not least of which is gerrymandering, not present in Britain. So in Britain, is there this partisanship? Does that explain any of what's going on with the uh, people not seeing economics as improving? Or is it the case that economics are really much worse in Britain? It depends. It's a really interesting um, comparison to make because Britain, Britain's performed least badly of the European economies. And, you know, and this is another complexity to the whole Brexit debate because it's really, really good that Britain wasn't part of the Eurozone, isn't part of the Eurozone. And that's one of the reasons it's bounced back quicker um, than the rest of Europe. It's, it, it trails behind the United States in terms of recovery from the 08 recession, but it's had a very different kind of recovery. So in America, you've seen a dramatic drop of the labor force participation rate, particularly for men. The fewer and fewer men of prime age actually work in America. Oddly enough, in Britain, the participation rate has gone up um, since the recession. So more people are working, but they're working for way lower wages. They're getting less than, you know, they, they would have been paid before the recession. So there are differences in the kind of economic picture between the two countries. There are also differences in the media market. It's a lot more difficult to break off into your own sort of electronic echo chambers or talk radio echo chambers in Britain. It is still a single sort of market for media in a way America isn't, partly because it's smaller. So I think what's happened is you just get a lot of people who don't consume any media whatsoever. That's the real divide. And you've got plenty of those in this country too, of who just don't bother, whether it's left-wing media, right-wing, tabloid, whatever it is, they've just opted out. They pay no attention. They think everybody's lying to them. That's certainly an echo with what you, you find in America. So one theme of everything we've been talking about is stability. We assume there would be some form, some version of stability in our politics in the West, and that has proven to be untrue. Is this just an inevitability of how the world is going, how the economy is going? You know, how should we grapple with this idea that that politics, as we knew them or thought we knew them, seems to be disintegrating before us? Well, it's sort of trade-off between stability and, I suppose, referendum politics. Is There is an objective problem there that, you know, Trump support doesn't come from nowhere. Brexit support doesn't come from nowhere. The fact that we drastic, a lot of us drastically disagree with the remedies 
and believe they're a cure worse than the disease is one thing. But, you know, we shouldn't discredit the fact that there is a lot of very understandable insecurity, frustration and resentment out there that the elites who are supposed to be leading the ships of state have basically made off with all the benefits from this ship. And there's, sorry to stretch a metaphor here, but that the people locked down in the hold of the Titanic seem to have been forgotten. I think a referendum or a presidential election, which is becoming a bit like a referendum, the question being, is Trump qualified to be president? So it's got a little bit of a, a referendum quality um, this, this coming November. It becomes a very, very dangerous lightning rod for these kinds of sentiments from people who feel they've been ignored, who feel that they are the um, object of polite society's derision. Political correctness protects every other group, protects all the immigrant groups, protects all the, you know, um, the minority groups you can think of, sexual, religious, and racial, except for these poor white blue-collar workers who are sort of laughed at. They don't speak English very well. They're not very educated. They're not adapting to the new world. Um, and we don't, we don't shield them with our rules of political correctness um, from, from mockery and from derision. And so I understand some of this. Uh, even though I'm not from that background, I, I really understand that if you are living in a society that claims to be a meritocracy and you're not doing well, then that means you're at fault. And if that means you're at fault, then you're, you're open season for somebody to laugh at, for other people to laugh at. Um, and so, you know, we're not going to get stability if this carries on. We're going to get more and more moments like, like this Brexit referendum um, and indeed the rise of Trump where we think, oh, my God, uh, the things that we've taken for granted since before we were born and that our parents took for granted, namely stable democracy, are they now in balance? Are they now in question? Might, might next time Brexit happen? Might next time Trump get elected? And, you know, until we do something about this underlying problem, the economic inclusion of all of society or of much of it as, as, as is reasonable um, to aim for, then I think, then I think the health and stability of our systems of government is going to be in question. I don't think 2016 is a blip year. I think this is the beginning of, uh, or the early stages at any rate, of a long challenge for democracy in the West. Edward Luce is the chief U.S. commentator and columnist for the Financial Times. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. 
Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. And now the spiel, analogies about laws about guns. Four gun control measures, all decided on uniform party lines, fairly uniform party lines, failed to get enough votes in the Senate, as once again, our political process proved that the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is an indifferent guy with a Senate seat. But in all seriousness, the specific solutions being proposed only range from the maybe wouldn't hurt to probably wouldn't do that much. Or as NRA director Wayne LaPierre put it on Face the Nation last Sunday, it's like What we're doing with this debate on the Hill right now, it's like they're trying to stop a freight train with a piece of Kleenex. He's not wrong, but he is responsible for the freight train's force, weight, mass, acceleration, the poor track maintenance, and the fact that the conductor has been hitting the sauce. But he's not wrong. That Kleenex ain't going to stop it. Of course, the only thing that can stop a bad freight train is a good freight train. I learned that in the gun-free zone known as the Isle of Sodor. LaPierre, whose very name kind of evokes a freight train bearing down on a damsel, LaPierre went on to make another non-Kleenex-based point, but in this case, he was wrong. I mean, if we want to save lives, let's look at Chicago, okay? Well, let's look at Chicago. Lots of murder, lots of gun laws. Now, remember that as I embark on my first analogy about laws about guns. All right, let's say I have type 2 diabetes, adult onset diabetes, and so does Fred, and so does Ginger. We've all got a touch of the sugar. So let's say I want to cure or tackle or manage my diabetes. So you say, well, Fred, Fred takes insulin, and his glucose levels are really low, and he's managing his diabetes well. So that would argue for insulin being an effective way to fight diabetes. Okay, okay, but let's look at Ginger. Ginger also takes insulin, but does it work for her? She's still unhealthy, and her glucose levels are high. But let's investigate a bit more. What if it turns out that Ginger, though she is prescribed insulin, doesn't take it correctly? She, she misses her doses. Also, she hasn't done anything about her diet. She hasn't controlled it at all. Would this tell you that insulin doesn't work? Or would this tell you that insulin taken improperly isn't going to work? Or maybe it's not even improper. Or it's only improper through a fault not of her own. You know, her pump's broken. She doesn't even realize it. The question for this analogy is to ask, would a fair-minded person, would a doctor look at those examples and say, well, insulin's a thing that won't work. Insulin's not a cure. Or would the doctor be able to say, oh, insulin's not a cure if you don't use it right? If you have a prescription that has some successes and some failures, do the failures prove that there's no path to success? Here's why. Chicago, but also New York. Yes, Chicago is a washing guns and the laws are ignored. Lots of reasons why, but it is the number one go-to example that gun control laws don't work. But if Chicago's a failure, New York is a staggering success story. Chicago, 2.7 million people twice the number of shootings as New York. 
8.4 million people. And New York is just crazy about gun control. We have stiff sentences. Remember when Plaxico Burris shot himself in the leg? He went to jail for that. He wouldn't go to jail in almost any other place. But in New York, we have stiff sentences. We'll suspend our star wide receivers even if they shoot themselves in the leg. You know, if you go to LaGuardia Airport, if you go fly anywhere in the United States and you're a gun owner, there's a procedure. You take the gun, you put it in a lockbox, you take the ammo in another lockbox, you declare this to the airline. That's all fine. And if you fly into LaGuardia and do this, you should be fine. But then this always happens. On the way out, if you're flying out of LaGuardia, you show up, you got your gun in the lockbox, you got your ammo separate, you say to airline personnel, yes, I'd like to check this because I want to follow procedure in the law. And they say, you are under arrest because in New York, we take our gun control laws seriously. And even if it's a legally owned gun elsewhere, it doesn't matter. You just broke the law. You just got arrested. Now, people are usually able to plead this down, but they're shocked. They don't understand. It's because New York takes its gun control laws seriously. And it's not the case, though, that you can't own a gun in New York. I walked into a gun shop the other day. I said I was interested in buying a gun, and the guy told me all about New York's procedures. There's a thorough vetting. You get assigned an officer, a police officer, and he vets you, and he looks at your relationships. Obviously, he looks at your arrest record, but he also does some interviews, and they decide if you're dangerous and if you can own a gun. But if there are no red flags, then you do get to own a gun, but you have to follow strict procedures. You got to carry it out of your house and to the range, locked up, unloaded. But if you want to keep it in your house, we're talking about a pistol here. If you want to keep it in your house, you can. You should follow good procedures there. But it's like anywhere else in the country. Once you own this gun, you could use it for defense if you want to in your own house. And the gun shop owner's tone wasn't, can you believe this? Isn't this ridiculous? It was more like, these are the laws you have to follow. These are the laws my customers follow. And they buy guns and they own guns. And I thought to myself, wow, how onerous. I mean, if everywhere in the country, if they followed this, think of the inconvenience, think of the infringement on rights, think of how many lives would be saved. I didn't think it was onerous at all. I said to myself, that seems pretty smart for the whole country. I'm not part of the gun culture. I think I like to be part of the highly vetted, highly restricted, you can own one if you really prove you need one or can handle one culture. But you know what? New York City has a lower murder rate than, I'm not going to say Chicago, obviously. I'm not going to say other big cities. I'm going to say this geopolitical entity it has a lower murder rate than the United States as a whole. What this means, if you want to significantly increase your chances of being murdered, move out of New York City. Now, knowing this, does it make any sense at all to say gun laws don't work? And I'll acknowledge it's not just the gun laws that make New York City so relatively murderless, but they've played a huge part. We have some natural advantage. Four-fifths of New York City is islands. Our closest neighbors have fairly sensible gun laws. For eight years, we were run by a person whose greatest goal in life was to spend billions of dollars that he actually had to make citizens safer. But the laws can work. All around me is living proof that the laws can work. I understand why they don't. And it's not just that the NRA controls politicians. American citizens don't want the laws to work. They don't want their fellow citizens being killed, but they want access to their guns more than they want gun laws. All right, let's not talk about cities. Let's talk about basketball. The Golden State Warriors, they set the record for most wins this season. They shot over 2,500 three-pointers. There was one other team that shot 2,500 threes, and that team was the Houston Rockets. 
Houston Rockets weren't very good. They were 500 team. They barely made the playoffs. Now, does that mean that taking a lot of three-point shots doesn't work? You've got the Warriors. The Warriors would say that it can work. The Houston Rockets would say just doing that alone, just adopting a certain strategy is not in and of itself enough to make it work. Let's look at selling things on the internet. Do you want to sell some things on the internet? No, that doesn't work because of pets.com. Yeah, but what about Amazon? No, what about Webvan? Yeah, but what about Amazon? I can think of hundreds and hundreds of examples. But if you're a doctor intent on a cure, or if you're a coach motivated to win, if you're an entrepreneur willing to take some chances, you wouldn't be so quick to decide that that strategy can't work. A fair-minded person simply would not say that an example of a strategy failing is proof of a failed strategy. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson doesn't move to the beat of just one drum while producing The Gist. What might be right for Steve Lichtai, executive producer of The Gist, might not be right for some. Say, Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He's a man of means. The Gist, we've got nothing but our dreams. Wait, what's that? Our genes? We've got nothing but our genes? Looks it up on the TV theme song database. Oh my God, you're right. We've got nothing but our genes. Oom Peru, Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening.